all of us probably have at least one relative who's a little bit crazy. One of my favorite stories about my family has to do with my Uncle Chester. Actually, great Uncle Chester. After he came home from serving in the Army, uh, he didn't come back the same, and he caught his girlfriend cheating on him with another guy. So like anybody who is uh, a little bit insane, he beat them both with a crowbar. Actually, he went to jail, went to prison, and then when he got out of prison, he married the same woman who he had beat. Now, obviously, I'm not making light of domestic violence. I don't want you to think that I think that the story's funny because of that. Um, but it does demonstrate that uh, you know we do have these people in our families, and every time Uncle Chester was around, we were all a little bit on edge because we knew this guy had beat somebody with a crowbar at one point in his life. So just kind of tiptoed around him, and parents kind of kept their kids close because crazy Uncle Chester was there. The book of Judges is kind of like the Bible's crazy uncle. It's got all these stories in it that are the types of things that you would hear come out of the mouth of some crazy relative. And, you know, we have these books of the Bible that we really like, like Genesis or Matthew, and those books are like the, the sweet old aunt that everybody likes, and she gives the kids candy at Christmas. But Judges is that book that uh, nobody really understands, nobody really appreciates, and it's just kind of left over there in the corner. Uh, there's a story about a left-handed guy who stabs somebody that's so fat that the sword is lost inside this guy's fat, his girth. Um, there's a leader who makes a rash vow, and because of this vow, he sacrifices his daughter. This is a guy who was a judge in Israel. Uh, there's a story towards the end of the book where uh, a Levite, a priest, makes an idol for somebody else. So even the priests are given to idolatry. Uh, everything in the book of Judges is upside down. It's backwards. It's different than we expect to find it elsewhere in Scripture. There's this pattern in the book where the people sin... And then they, uh, God gives them over to their enemy. So they've sinned, God gives them over to their enemy. And then they repent, and God raises up a judge, and the judge delivers them from their enemies, and then they have rest. And then they have rest for a little bit, and then they sin again. So it just repeats itself over and over again. God raises up a judge, he delivers them, and then they sin. And he raises up a judge, uh, he delivers them, and then they sin. Tonight, we're going to look at the last judge in the book, Samson. We're going to look at his death, and uh, Samson demonstrates exactly how far the Israelites have fallen. The fact that he lives so selfishly, he lives short-sightedly, and he dies the same exact way shows that the Israelites have just completely gone off the map. They have forsaken God, they've forsaken his purpose for them, and they have completely turned away. Even their leaders... Uh, fail to live up to the commands that God has given them. Now, uh, this might sound like a really harsh thing to say to, about a biblical character, to say that he has a wasted death at the end of a wasted life, or to say that he lives selfishly or dies selfishly. But I think tonight, as we look at this passage, we're going to see that this is true, that Samson really is this guy that uh, we shouldn't honor like we do sometimes. Samson's story begins... Uh, in order to look at how he died, we have to first consider his life a little bit. 
His story begins in Judges 13. That's where we hear about his birth, who's foretold to his mom through this angel. So this angel comes to his mom, who is barren and childless, and says, you're going to bear a son. Now, that event alone should make us think about other things that we've seen in the Old Testament this far. Way back in Genesis 3, we saw God tell the woman that she was going to bring forth children with difficulty. Now, that only that doesn't only mean that she'd have pain in childbirth. We also talked about how it meant that uh, conception would be hard, and it would be emotionally difficult and painful for the woman because uh, they would have trouble getting pregnant. They would have trouble keeping or staying pregnant, and all these things would happen that would make it difficult for them to bear children. Samson's mom is one of those women, and the angel comes to them and says, uh, you're going to bear a son. We also saw Sarah, who was barren for almost 100 years, and uh, an angel comes to her and says, you're going to have Isaac. The same thing happens with Joseph. Rachel, his mother, is barren before he's born. We also saw about Moses and how Pharaoh sought to kill him right out of the womb. So when we see a, a significant birth like this, like Samson's, where this angel comes to his mother and says, you're going to bear a son, we should be expecting this child to be great. We should be expecting this character to be a significant leader in Israel. But that's not the case. We'll also see that uh, in Judges 13, the, the angel tells his mother that he's going to be set apart from the womb. And what this means is uh, the angel tells her that he's going to be a Nazarite. Now, Nazarites are not to be confused with Nazarenes. Nazarenes are this denomination that we have today where uh, the people... You know, they're basically Arminian, and they believe some other stuff. But that's not a Nazarite. Uh, Nazarites are a specific type of Old Testament vow that people make. It means that they won't cut their hair, they won't drink, and they won't be around unclean things. So this is who Samson is. Uh, if you have trouble remembering who Nazarites are, just think of them as Old Testament long-haired Baptists. So Samson's mom was barren. This angel visits her, says, you're going to bear a son, and she says that he's going to be set apart from the time of his birth all the way to the time of his death. So we should be thinking, this guy is going to be an amazing leader in Israel. But is he? The first act of Samson's life that we read about is his marriage. He goes down to the kingdom of the Philistines, and he sees this girl, and he says, she is right in my eyes. I want to marry her. Now, we all know from the Old Testament that the Israelites were forbidden from intermarrying with Gentiles. So Samson wasn't supposed to do this. But he sees this girl, he likes her, and he says, I don't care what God wants me to do, I'm going to marry her. Even though he's disobedient, even though he marries this Philistine woman, God still works through it. God still uses Samson to judge the Philistines since they're Israel's enemies. We also read about uh, Samson and this prostitute in Gaza, and then later Samson with Delilah. And all these things happen that show that Samson is just this guy that just kind of runs around willy-nilly and does whatever he wants to do. He has no regard for anyone else. He has no regard for God. He just seeks what's right in his own eyes. What's most shocking about the Samson stories is the absence of Israel. Throughout the entire narrative where it's talking about Samson, the only time Israelites are mentioned are when they're on the opposite side of Samson. His parents say, don't go marry this girl. You're not supposed to. 
uh, some people from Judah come to him and try to uh, hand him over to the Philistines so that he can be punished. So Samson is supposed to lead Israel, but instead of leading them, he seems to be on the other side. Judges 15.20 says that Samson judged Israel for 20 years. But the picture that we get is that uh, he's this guy that's just driven by lust, whether it's sexual lust or bloodlust. He just goes around doing whatever he wants. We're going to see all of these things come out in Samson's death. We already talked about Delilah, and what happens is uh, Delilah is this woman that Samson loves, and she tricks him into giving up the secret of his strength. Now, like twice, she betrays Samson and deceives him and hands him over to the Philistines, and for some reason, he stays with her. And the third time, he tells her the truth. The third time, he says, if you cut off my hair because of my Nazarite vow, I'll lose my strength. So Samson falls asleep. She brings in this guy who cuts off his hair. And then as soon as he wakes up, the Philistines capture him. They capture him, they gouge out his eyes, and they throw him in prison. This is where we pick up the story tonight. Uh, The main point of tonight's passage of Samson's death, which is Judges uh, 16, 23 through 31, is that Samson died just like he lived. He died selfishly and short-sightedly. We're going to see this in the two parts of tonight's text. The first part deals with where he died, kind of the setting, and the second part deals with how he died. We're going to go ahead and read Judges 16, 23 through 37, which is the first part of tonight's text. If you don't have a Bible, there's some at the end of the rows, and you'll find tonight's passage on 216. So if you would, turn with me to Judges 16. We're going to read verses 23 through 37. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when they saw him, they praised their god, for they said, Our god has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. So these verses contain the information about where Samson dies. Think of them as the introduction to his death. But just because they're in the introduction doesn't mean that they're not important. In the first two verses, we see the Philistines worship. Uh, They've gathered all their leaders together and about 3,000 other people. And they're praising their god, Dagon, because they say that he has handed Samson over into their hands. Look at how they worship Dagon because of Samson's downfall. They're singing, the songs that they sing are the songs that Israel should have been singing. Israel right now is wallowing in their sin. They're disobeying God. But what they should have been doing is they should have been conquering their enemies because the Lord was behind them. They should have been saying, they should have been gathering together and offering sacrifices to Yahweh and rejoicing and saying, our God has given our enemies into our hands. But instead, because they're sinning, the Philistines are doing this. How often 
do false gods get the worship that only God deserves? You know, we don't see this in Hannibal. We don't see people bowing down to objects made out of wood, stone, or metal. Instead, we see people worship politicians or celebrities or athletes or college football teams. We see people worship their possessions or their houses or their jobs. And instead, we should be singing these songs to God. Now, we're going to see how Samson responds to the Philistines later in the passage. But one thing that he does do is he fails. And years later, there's going to become an Israelite, David, who conquers another Philistine, Goliath, because he defied God. So that's the way Samson should have responded. Instead of just sitting back and watching, even though he didn't have eyes, he should have conquered the Philistine. He should have reacted as David did. He should have said, you should not defy God. And because of that, I'm going to punish you. Now, obviously, I'm not saying that we all run out after the service and buy slingshots and follow in David's footsteps. But what we should do is we should have the same kind of confidence that David had when we stand up for the Lord's name in the world. Now, obviously, the Lord doesn't need us to stand up for him. He's going to receive glory no matter what we do. But he receives honor when his people defend his name in the world. What's ironic about this is that the reason why we don't stand up for God most of the time is because we fear being mocked. And that's exactly what happens to Samson, even though he doesn't. So we'll see this in the next three verses. In verses 25 through 27, the Philistines call Samson out to entertain them. Now, we might be tempted to think that Samson had some sort of gift as an entertainer, like he was a magician or a clown or that he could juggle. But that's not the case. Samson is called out because they want to laugh at him. That's how he's going to entertain them. The word here is the same word that uh, Isaac is named after. He's named laughter. And so they call Samson out because they want to laugh at this old, blind, strong guy who has been stripped of his strength, and now he's just led around by this young boy. So picture this guy who used to, uh, back in Judges 15, he kills 3,000 guys, maybe not 3,000. He kills a lot of guys with a jawbone. And now here he is, and he's blind, and he's just being led around by this young kid, and he's not even a threat anymore. In the next section... We'll see how he dies. Let's read Judges 28 through 31. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah his father. He had judged Israel twenty years. So, Samson had been deceived and betrayed by Delilah. He had his eyes gouged out 
and he had been thrown in prison. But it's not until they mock him that he decides to call out to the Lord. It's pretty ironic that he says, Lord, please remember me, when it seems like he's the one that's actually forgotten God. He's the one who hasn't called out to God. Don't we do the same thing that Samson does? Don't we wait to call out to God until things get tough or we start to experience discomfort? We go through our lives and times are good and we forget about God. We don't pray. We don't seek his face. We don't seek his will. We don't seek to honor him until something bad happens. We lose our job. Can't pay the bills. Uh, something happens to us that we don't like. Then we call out to God and we say, Lord, please remember me. When in reality, we were the ones that have forgotten him. And even when Samson finally does remember God, his prayer is pretty selfish. Let's look at this again. Let's look at what he says. Oh, Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And then in verse 30, he says, let me die with the Philistines. He's completely focused on himself. Sure, he says, oh, Lord God, at the beginning. He starts the prayer focused on God, but he's only focused on God to the point that God's going to do something for him. Think about how this compares to the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The entire first half of the prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples is focused on the Lord and his glory. Only after doing that does he focus on their personal needs. And when he focuses on those, it's interesting that his focus isn't on the singular. It's not on give me my daily bread. It's give us our daily bread. So his focus is on the community of believers instead of the individual. When we pray, we should ask God to meet our needs. We should pray, in a sense, like Samson prayed. We should ask God to do things for us. But we should only do that after we've given God the worship that he deserves. And we should only do that recognizing that God is the giver. He is the provider. He is the supplier. He is the one who gives us these things. And it's not so that we can have them selfishly for ourselves, but it's so that we can give him glory by serving him with them. Which of these two more closely resembles your prayer life? Do you ask God for things for yourself? Or do you ask God for things so that you can serve him? Are you only focused on yourself? Or do you ask God to meet the needs of others? Do you spend more time treating God like a vending machine that you can get things from? Or do you spend time worshiping him for who he is and spending time seeking his will and his glory in your life and the world? I hope that we seek to pray more like Christ and less like Samson. Obviously, we've seen the selfish aspects of Samson, but how is he short-sighted? This comes out of what it is that he asks God for. He finally calls out to God after all this time, and what does he ask? He asks, strengthen me only this once, only one time. Why doesn't he ask for more? Why doesn't he ask for God to deliver him so that he can deliver Israel? It's because the only thing that Samson's concerned about at this point is that he may be avenged on the Philistines for his two eyes. That's all he cares about. He's mad because they gouged out, of his, eye, gouged out his eyes. He's mad 
because they made fun of him. So he calls out to the Lord and asks that the Lord would allow him to punish them. We'll see that the Lord grants this request. In verse 30, he says, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. This last statement isn't positive. It's not meant to dignify Samson's death. It's not meant to compliment it. It's meant to criticize it. They're saying, if we can say about somebody, that guy's more useful dead than alive, it's probably not a good thing. That's not something you would want somebody to say about you after you're gone. As we've gone through the Old Testament this far, we've seen the theme of substitutes throughout it. We've seen people die in the place of others. That's not what happens here. Samson's not dying for Israel. He's dying for himself. He dies only seeking vengeance. This isn't, uh, Samson's death isn't substitution. It's suicide. Samson's the last judge in the book. His life and his death demonstrate just how far Israel has fallen. If the guy who's supposed to be leading the nation back to God acts this way, what are the rest of the people like? What are the rest of the people living like? At the end of the book, there's this refrain that comes over and over again in the book of Judges. It says, at that time, there was no king in Israel, and they did what was right in their own eyes. Don't you think that's because they were led by a guy like Samson, who, by his own admission, said, I'm doing this because it's right in my eyes. So Samson has led them this way. This is why they're acting this way. And this is where they end up. In a lot of ways, Samson's life is a picture of Israel's. Samson was set apart from God at his birth. Israel was, were God's people from the very beginning. Samson was given a specific set of rules to follow so that he was set apart for God. We see the same thing happen, happening to Israel at Mount Sinai. God gives them these rules because they're his special people. Both Israel and Samson are given over to their enemies because they disobey the regulations that God gave them. And I think this is really interesting. The last king in Judah, the last king of Israel that we see in the Old Testament is Zedekiah. He has his eyes gouged out by the enemy before he's taken off into prison. So both Samson and the leader of Israel have their eyes gouged out. So... If it's really this bad, if Samson is this horrible guy, what can we take away from his story? What can we get out of this by way of application for our lives by seeing Samson, who clearly wasn't the leader that God called him to be? We've been trying to see how the Old Testament points to the Messiah. And sometimes, in a text like this, the only thing that points to Christ is the fact that he's not there. We see Samson as a forerunner of Christ, because he wasn't. We see him because he is this bad guy. And the only reason we know why he is a great example of what not to do is because we have a great example of what we're supposed to do. Because we have Christ, who's our example, we know what Samson's doing is wrong. We know this isn't the way he's supposed to live, and this isn't the way he's supposed to die, because we know what a life lived rightly and a death died rightly looks like. As God's people, we're not supposed to lead poorly. 
we're not supposed to pray selfishly. And we're not supposed to die only thinking of ourselves. Jesus taught us how to lead by serving, how to pray uh, unselfishly, unselfishly, and how to intercede for others. But most importantly, he taught us how to lay down our life for others. In John 15, Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. When Jesus said this, do you think that he didn't know what was ahead of him? Do you think he said that without thinking of the cross, without knowing exactly what his destiny was? He's talking to these people. He's saying, you need to lay down your lives for someone else, knowing that he was going to do it for them. He knew he was headed to the cross for the people that he was speaking to and for us when he said these words. He knew exactly what he was commanding us to do. It wasn't some philosophical or metaphorical statement that we need to be willing to give our lives for another. It was intensely practical. He said, you need to die for somebody else, and I'm going to show you how. We need to decide whether we want to die like Samson or whether we want to die like Christ. Now, the problem with sermons like this is that we often stop here. We leave this abstract statement out there that we need to die for the gospel or our friends or our family members, and then we go home. Because it's easy to say that. It's easy for me to say, sure, I'll die for the gospel. I'll give my life for somebody else. Because you can't know whether or not I would really do that until it comes up. If somebody came here with a gun and asked me to deny Christ, then we would know whether I would or not. But... We can't know. We can't live that out. So what does that mean? Does that mean we're completely lost and we just go home without knowing what to do? No, because if the story of Samson teaches us anything, it teaches us that people die like they live. He went out selfishly and short-sightedly because that's the way he lived. Christ went out selflessly and for others because that's how he lived. People don't live completely selfish lives and then, when they're dying, die for somebody else. They don't do that. Nor do people who live their whole life serving others go down just thinking about themselves. They don't do that. If we want to claim that we die for the gospel or that we die for our friends or our family members or complete strangers, then we have to live for those things. If we want to live for the gospel... We have to overcome our fears of being mocked or laughed at or rejected and share the gospel. If you say you die for the gospel, but you don't share it, then you probably wouldn't. If we want to live selflessly before others and really prove that we'd actually die for somebody, then we need to serve them. We need to put the wants and needs of others ahead of ourselves. We need to show people that we value them more than we value ourselves. Now, living like this isn't just going to happen. We have to be intentional. So, tonight's application is just going to be practical. We're going to take all of this out of the room of the abstract, and I'm going to challenge you to do three things this week. Three really simple things. First one is share the gospel. 
we shouldn't have to tell ourselves to do this. We shouldn't have to make this a requirement. We should be willing to do it. If we say that we die for the gospel, then we should be sharing it. So I challenge you to share the gospel with somebody this week. We know what this means. We know how to do it. But we've got a million excuses not to. Number two, focus on intentionally serving somebody you see every day. So you don't see the same person every day. Pick somebody you see a lot. This means just be intentional about serving somebody you're close to. Don't make a big deal out of it. Don't go over to the person and say, I just want you to know I'm going to be intentionally serving you this week. Uh, Just pick somebody in your life that you care about and serve them intentionally. Try to live like you would die for them. The third one, and this will probably be the hardest for most of us, focus on intentionally serving somebody that it's hard for you to serve. Somebody that you have to go out of your way for, somebody that you don't like, uh, somebody that is just hard to serve. Be intentional about serving them. These are three simple ways that we can put Samson's story into action and try to glean truth from it. Remember, it's easy to say that we die for the gospel. It's a lot harder to live like it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your son as an example. Lord, we thank you that he said some hard things. And he requires a lot from us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live like him. So that we can lay down our lives for others like he did. Father, we ask that your spirit would empower us, Lord, to meet the demands that Christ's life places on us. Lord, we thank you for showing us in Israel what happens to people that don't follow your your word and don't follow your commands and that who give themselves over to selfishness and sin. Lord, we ask that that would shake us out of our idleness. Lord, that a desire to live differently and to live like your son and to to prove that we would lay down our life for another would overtake us, Lord, and that we would serve people like he served people. Lord, and that we would share the truth of your redemption like he did. Lord, we thank you for the grace that we have in your son. It's in his name we pray.